The Institute of Art and Ideas is excited to announce Closer to Truth as an official partner for our upcoming How the Light Gets In Festival at Hey on Why, happening this year, May 24th to 27th. Closer to Truth examines humanity's deepest questions with the world's greatest thinkers, from Nobel laureates and renowned scientists to theologians and best-selling authors. For 20 years, Closer to Truth has explored the deep questions of cosmos, consciousness, and meaning. This year, host Robert Lawrence Kuhn journeys to new depths with their philosophy of biology season, exploring topics like evolution, race, alien intelligences, sex and gender, and much more. Get early access to full episodes from this brand new season by registering for a free membership at their website, closertotruth.com. Discover the fundamental issues of existence, engage new and diverse ways of thinking, and seek out your own answers with Closer to Truth. Hello and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, bringing you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. Today it seems everyone has their own facts, our political leaders have alternative facts, but so do the liberal elite and the mainstream media. Meanwhile, reason has been derided by many as a typically male bludgeon to deny alternative views. So should we welcome the challenge to facts and reason as a progressive move undermining the authority of traditional Western hierarchies? Or is this undermining a singularly dangerous exercise? Joining us to debate the value of truth in contemporary society are Professor of Philosophy at the Open University, Sophie Grace Chapel, Professor of Philosophy at Stockholm University, Anandi Hatiagandhi, and Professor of Philosophy at the New College of the Humanities, Simon Blackburn. This debate was recorded live at our festival, How the Light Gets In. If you would like to book a place at the upcoming London edition at the end of this month, please use the code RTIMES for 20% off your tickets. For more information, just follow the links in the show notes. I'll now hand you over to our host for this debate, philosopher Julian Baggini. Hello and welcome. I'm Julian Baggini and this debate is on a matter of facts. Our theme today is facts, facts and reason, supposedly essential to make progress and to make a better world. At least that's what we used to say. Now it seems everybody has their own facts and world leaders like Trump and Putin have their own alternative ones. But then they turn around and claim that the so-called facts of the liberal elite and the mainstream media are equally dubious. And reason, facts, handmaiden perhaps, is derided by many as a typically male bludgeon to deny alternative views. So should we welcome this challenge to facts and reason as a progressive move undermining the authority of traditional Western hierarchies founded on establishment prejudice? Or is the undermining of facts and reason singularly dangerous, threatening a belligerent world with no shared framework and no communication? Well, I take it as a matter of fact that we have an excellent panel to discuss this. Sophie Grace Chapel is Professor of Philosophy at the Open University in the UK, and her areas of interest are epistemology, politics, ethics, and feminism. Professor of Philosophy at Stockholm University, Anandi Hatiangadi's research covers the philosophy of mind and language, epistemology, and metaethics. Simon Blackburn is a leading philosophy professor and originator of the metaethical view of quasi-realism. He says he's not a proponent of popularizing philosophy, but he is certainly one of our best communicators of it. So welcome to you all. So we're going to just start by giving you all three minutes to set out your philosophical stall. And we're going to start with just a very general question. Should we welcome the challenge to 
facts and reason that we're seeing. And let's just take it from the top. Sophie Grace, do you want to kick us off? Well, should we welcome which challenge to facts and reason? There are a number of challenges, and some of them come from various kinds of pragmatist philosophy, perhaps, and they're the more acceptable challenges, in my view. And some of them come simply from people who have a brute lust for power and who want to get rid of what is inconvenient to their political agendas. So if people want to have an abstract discussion of what it means to say that things are true or false, then that's fine by me. But when people are bending the notion of truth to suit their own political agendas, when people are simply ignoring facts, ignoring truths, in order to get their way in politics, then I think that's extremely dangerous. And I think what's particularly dangerous in this post-truth mood that we have, when, for example, Michael Gove says that uh, the UK public has had enough of experts, or when President Trump simply comes out with utter nonsense about injecting disinfectant. I think that's profoundly dangerous and profoundly retrogressive, actually. It's not progressive in the slightest. It takes us backward, not forward. And one of the biggest reasons why, well, you, you can name a big reason from the humanities, if you like, and a big reason from the sciences. The big reason from the humanities is that I think it's crucial that in a democracy, our debate, our discussion, should be governed by what I call conversational norms, which is a term I picked up from the work of Paul Grice in his wonderful paper, Logic and Conversation. He talks about the norms of conversation. He talks about the norms of communicating with each other. And Grice says that norms are things like willingness to listen to each other, making statements which include everything that's relevant and true and nothing that isn't both relevant and true. One can, I think, get from Grice's norms, which are meant just as logic and com logical and conversational norms, one can get actual ethical norms by thinking about those a bit more and extending them a bit more. And the idea would be, I think, that we're in a republic of conversation, we have to respect each other, and even more than respecting each other, to echo Aristotle, we have to respect the truth. That's a crucial part, I think, of humanistic inquiry. It's also a crucial part of science for a very simple reason, which is that evolution filters out fact recalcitrance over time. If you don't live in a way which respects the brute facts, and brute facts is perhaps the right phrase here, about how the world is, then you will die. Your species will die out if you take disinfectant instead of a vaccine for the virus, you will die. It's as simple as that. You'll get selected out. It's not for nothing that people talk of there being a Darwin Award sometimes on the internet. Well, the Darwin Award is an award for the, it's, it's an award for getting yourself selected out of the gene pool. It's an award for those who don't respect the facts. Thanks very much. And perfect timing, which is quite rare, especially for a philosopher, I have to say. So, so good for you. And Andy, what do you take of this issue? Welcoming the challenge to facts and reason. And uh, as Sophie Grace has already pointed out, we have to say which challenges we, we welcome and which we don't. It's not a single question. Yeah, I think I agree. I think there are uh, several different challenges to facts and reason. And I want to distinguish, I want to take a minute to distinguish two of them that I think are particularly worth mentioning. One of them has been kind of associated with left-wing progressives, typically in humanities departments, and it's a kind of relativist challenge. The other one is the thing that I think is coming from the populists, and I'm going to say something about that next. So first, 
the challenge that comes from the left, from the progressives in the academy, is a kind of relativist challenge that's grounded in the works of Thomas Kuhn, for example, and the later Wittgenstein. Relativism about reason, in this sense, is the idea that there are no standards for reasoning that are really rational, that are really objectively the right standards that you should adopt across all contexts and all cultures. So there's no asymmetry, really, between science and the norms of science, the norms that we adopt when we engage in science as compared to astrology or tea leaf reading. It's just that some norms are accepted in some cultures and some are, uh, different norms are accepted in others. Relativism about facts, I think, is this kind of social constructivist idea that facts are not chunks of reality that are out there waiting to be discovered. Rather, the facts are something that we project onto the world. Right? So science, again, is not privileged as a particularly effective way of coming to know these independently existing facts. Right? There's just different ways in which we might construct them. So you might think that that kind of challenge is to be welcomed, right? It was, you know, when I was a grad student in, uh, in the late 90s, it was all the rage to issue these kinds of challenges to facts and reason. And for many people, this came out of a kind of view that it was aligned with progressive values in some sense. So, for example, I think there were lots of feminist critiques of science that demonstrated the extent to which science is, you know, operates with gender stereotypic biases. And it seemed like a natural extension of this to say that it's not just the, you know, the scientific research, the beliefs, but the very logic and scientific method are masculine constructs. And this seemed like some kind of radical extension of the feminist project. Second, I think people thought that relativism promotes tolerance in some sense towards other ways of knowing, right? Because it allows us to validate the belief systems of others. We can say, for example, that the Azande belief in witchcraft is, you know, true relative to them. And we can say that believing on the basis of oracles is rational relative to one set of standards. That seems to sort of be a way of validating other ways of knowing. But I don't think that this is really, I think this is super misleading. So I don't think that it is in fact progressive. So on the one hand, I think relativism just takes the sting out of the feminist critiques of science, because if there is no really objective rationality, then we can't show that science is biased against this objective standard. Secondly, I don't think that relativism really is in itself recommending that we should be tolerant towards other views, because it doesn't really counsel anything of that kind at all. Okay. I mean, it's a fact that you've had significantly over three minutes, so perhaps we can uh, save some of the more thoughts for later, particularly, we'll, I'm sure we'll come back to populism, but thanks for okay. that. Simon, what, what would you like to add to this, this set of stalls, this well, sort of marketplace of ideas? I'm not sure I've got very much to add. I think both speakers have uh, set out things very admirably. I think that from the get-go in the 80s and 90s, as Andy said, when a certain kind of relativism or anything goes sort of postmodernism became all the rage in left-wing circles. I always thought, no, there's something wrong about this. It's, it's inflated. For example, when people say that everybody's got their own facts, that's an inflated way of saying that sometimes people believe different things. We all know that. You grow up knowing that. And people do believe different things. And if people say, you know, everybody's got their own reasons, yes, indeed, some people will take one thing as a reason for something and other people don't. And so it's just something about which people hold different beliefs or if you prefer different attitudes. 
But of course, it doesn't follow that no one attitude is better. And often they are. Our beliefs uh, form, in the wonderful words of Frank Ramsey, somebody, a uh, Cambridge figure, not an Oxford figure like Grice, but never mind. He said that our, our system of belief is the system with which we confront the world, with which we come to the future. And in that system, there are certain fairly fixed points that the Earth is round, that the sun is about 92 million miles away, that some diseases are caused by bacteria and others by viruses, and so on. There's an endless number of things which you've got to be dotty to challenge. And as Sophie Grace said, if you do go around challenging them, Darwin will strike, because these are things which, if you get wrong, you may die because of you getting that wrong. Uh, so I think there's no doubt that there's a core that nearly everybody sane is going to share. They say President Trump isn't going to share it, but then that just makes the point. The problem, I think, is not with people having different beliefs, because we know how to argue about that. The problem, I think, is when people think that somehow they've got a, a right to the different beliefs, that it means that they don't have to listen to other people, uh, that you can retreat into a bubble or a silo and wrap yourself up and you don't have to think anymore. And that's laziness. It's also inconsiderate and rude. And I think it's, again, ultimately self-defeating. Because if you don't test your beliefs, if you don't listen to other people's arguments, then eventually you get fossilized, you become stuck in some sort of rut. No guarantee at all that the rut is a useful one, no guarantee at all that it's even one that's going to enable you to survive. And I think it's inconsiderate. And consider, I mean, to take a very simple example pertinent today, uh, take the anti-vax movement. Now, these are people who think that there are reasons, not usually stated, for doubting that the medical profession knows what it's doing when it cancels vaccinations, and who think that their own children are sufficiently important not to need to assist others in becoming immune to something like measles or whatever. And I think they're inconsiderate. I think they're profoundly wrong in their epistemology. They're wrong in what they believe about vaccination and about the medical profession. And I think they're very, very dangerous. And worse than that, I think they're very, very rude because by not listening to other people, they're putting themselves on a pedestal. It's a sort of egoism, which needs taking down a peg or two, I think. Okay, thanks very much indeed. Uh, I just one thing I want to flag up here. Both, both you, Simon, and Sophie Grace mentioned this idea that you know, evolution will find you out if you don't respect the facts. Of course, there are people who, who challenge that. I mean, uh, a, a recent year's a staple of how the light gets in has been the, I think, these are physicist or neuropsychologist Donald Hoffman, who, who always attracts very large crowds telling people that reality isn't what we think it is. And his view is that evolution has not tracked us for, has not you know, evolved us to detect facts, it's detect, evolved us to do whatever it takes to survive. And the argument is that there is no reason why we should expect what helps us to best survive is necessarily that is going to track reality as it really is, right? That may be something one of you wants to come back to later or may not, but I, I just thought it's quite interesting to 
um, throw that in. But to begin with, I think perhaps what we could most profitably do initially is focus in a bit on what we mean by this word fact. It's meant to be about facts and we're using the word fact, but w what is it really? Because I guess here the problem is that a fact is supposedly something which is just objectively there, it's true, full stop, and yet people generally widely believe that it's actually not possible to have a fact which is free of your own prejudices or independent of your own outlook. So I'm very interested to know what each of you think a fact is actually and whether it can, we can really have objective facts or whether that's a kind of a, a dream of reason that sort of rationalist philosophy should have grown out of. Um, and Andy, perhaps you can start us off on that. Yeah, I mean, I think there's an argument from this kind of relativist position, which says that we don't, we can't even have an idea of an objective fact that's outside of us, that's not just what we project onto the world, because there's no standpoint from which we can in, have an independent grasp on the facts as opposed to what we believe the facts to be. So that you find this argument in various places, I think it probably originates with the Pyronian skeptics, but the idea is that because we can't stand back and see our beliefs and compare them to the facts, that we have no idea about the objective facts anyway. But I think that there is a way that we can get at at least this idea of a gap between what we believe to be the case and what the facts are by just imagining circumstances in which we believe things to be thus and so and the facts being different other than the way that we believe them to be. So that is a way in which we can make sense of the idea that our beliefs are one way and the world is a different way. And that is just the idea of the objective facts being you know, independent of us, not just the way we take them to be. So, so f from that, could, do you have any kind of like straightforward definition of a fact, or, or would you would you think it's it's can't can't be pinned down so neatly? Maybe. I think that there's a there's a you know there's a very straightforward, flat-footed way of thinking about what a fact is. It is what our true beliefs are about, right? So that could be something in the external world, or it could be something in my mind, but it's something that our true beliefs are about, or our true statements are about. And so once you distinguish between the things that our statements are about from the statements themselves, it's easy to see that there's that gap between those two things. I can get things wrong or I can get things right. So a fact is going to be the thing that our true statements or our true beliefs are about. Okay, I suppose one might worry that's a bit circular. We're, we're in facts in terms of what is true. I mean, Simon or, or Sophie Grace, do you have any thoughts on that? I mean, are you, are you satisfied with that general way of categorizing it? And are, are you satisfied with the fact that it seems to contain a sort of a necessary element of, well, let's call it circularity, you know, it's, it, 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 it doesn't seem, oh, it's not like, aha, well, that's it, um, because it begs the question about what true beliefs are, et cetera, et cetera. Would either of you like to come in? Sophie Grace, you look like you'd like to. Well, I, I come at this, I suppose, with two thoughts in my mind. And the first is to do with Plato and in particular the Theotetus, because I'm interested in Plato's work and because I think the Theotetus is one of the greatest discussions of these issues I've ever come across. That's where I tend to go back to him. It's like the, the drunk who's looking for his keys under the, under the light because that's where the light is. So I, I tend to go back to Plato because that's what I know about. So in that discussion, I think what emerges between Plato and Protagoras, they're discussing relativism. Protagoras seems to be saying that all truths are truths for somebody. And so we get very quickly from what Protagoras says to the modern way of speaking that you often hear, this is true for me. And I think when you reflect on that, I'm not quite sure that I can piece this together as an argument that Plato himself makes, but I think it's an argument worth thinking about. And I think it emerges quickly when you reflect on the Theotetus. There's a kind of contradiction in saying for any proposition, call the proposition P, 
it's true for P is fine in a way that it's true for me that P is not fine. Why isn't it fine to say it's true for me that P? Well, because of what truth is. When you say that any P, any proposition is true, what you're doing is you're telling anybody who's listening to you, quite generally, whoever they may be, that they can rely on it, that P. That's what you're saying to them. You're saying you can rely on it, that P. So it's, that's what it's true that P means, as far as I, I can see. I mean, at least in part, it means you can rely on it, that P. Now, if I say it's true for me, that P, what am I telling you that you can rely on? All I'm doing is telling you that perhaps it's unclear what it's true for me means, but it appears to me that I'm saying I rely on it, that P. But I'm, I'm giving with one hand and taking back with the other. I'm, I appear to be saying both P and you can rely on it, that P. And at the same time, I'm saying this is just what I rely on. It's got nothing to do with anyone else. So I think there's some kind of inconsistency there buried in the structure of relativism. And I, I think the discussion between Protagoras and Socrates in the Theotetus is very good at bringing out that contradiction. This idea of labeling propositions and saying you can rely on this one. Relativism makes it look, makes it sound like, rather like Anandi was saying, Everything is a viewpoint, and there's nothing underlying the viewpoints. And so then I was inviting my students at the University of Canterbury to think about statements like, you know, you can see the North Island of New Zealand from the South Island, which may or may not be true, I'm not quite sure. Or you can see Araki Mount Cook from the highest point on the Banks Peninsula just above Christchurch, that kind of statement. These are statements about viewpoints, about what you can see from viewpoints. Now, I have an argument by analogy that I'd like to run here, and I'm not sure how to cash it out, but it goes roughly like this. There are lots of truths about viewpoints and about what we can see from where. But underlying these truths about viewpoints, there are truths about maps. And those aren't truths from viewpoints. And the truths about maps explain the truths about viewpoints, and for that matter, the false claims about what's visible from viewpoints. They have explanatory value relative to those viewpoint claims in a way that is not mirrored. There's no converse fact about truths from viewpoints explaining facts about maps. So the facts about maps are fundamental. And in the picture that I'm putting up, they're kind of the objective facts that we're referring back to. Sure, there's a plethora of viewpoints, but the facts about math, maps underlie and explain those facts about viewpoints. And thanks so much. I mean, in Simon, at this festival and other events, you're often kind of, you know, brought on stage to sort of fight the good fight against against relativists and so yeah i wonder you might be a bit tired of it but having, having to you know really debated discuss these things for so long i suppose i'm curious to know from your point of view what for you is the sort of best skeptical argument to make us doubt whether there are such things as facts you know even if you end up rejecting all of them and you think yes there are facts and you can't do anything without it you know what what rather than just sort of like as dismissed as kind of dumb, silly, obvious answers. What's the best argument you've heard? That you've, you, it takes some effort and intellect to really kind of counter from that there are no facts really objective. Well, I think in a way, uh, Anandi adverted to this, uh, to this argument, the best argument you can find, which is that there's no, as it were, escaping from your own belief system. You, you've got it. What you believe determines what you will say the facts are. And if you're sufficiently self-critical to start wondering whether you're right, there's no such thing as going behind your belief system, away from it, and checking out whether it corresponds with the world. Now, one's got to understand that properly. The, the idea which the Pironian skeptics probably did come up with 
that you can't take up a viewpoint that isn't your own viewpoint. I think that's true. But of course, it doesn't follow that you can't check on your own beliefs, and you often can, and wise people do. If I believe that it's going to be fine tomorrow, so I don't bother to pack my umbrella, it might be wise for me to check on the forecast when tomorrow comes, because I might have been wrong. The forecast yesterday might have been wrong. I might get wet, or something more Darwinian might happen to me. So I think that the best arguments are not terribly good. Now I'm putting on one side a very highfalutin argument, which has had a lot of currency in professional philosophy. And this was probably put most pithily by uh, the great American philosopher and logician, Willard Van Orman Quine. Quine said, facts are fictions. They are simply invented for the sake of something for true beliefs to correspond to. So what he was doing was raising doubts about the notion of correspondence truth, of truth as correspondence to the facts. Now, it's not wrong to say that truth is correspondence with the facts. Of course it is. The two, the two phrases are just synonymous. But a lot of philosophers have rather doubted whether talking about correspondence with the facts casts any light on the notion of truth. As it were, it's uh, just the fifth wheel, or if you like, the wheels are skidding, to change the metaphor. You can say that something's true if you agree with it. You can say it corresponds with the facts if you agree with it. But you can't say it corresponds with the facts, meaning something beyond saying it's true. And then truth has a very nasty habit of disappearing because it's true that P just means the same as P. It's true that we're in a Zoom meeting, just means we're in a Zoom meeting. And so truth has a slightly self-effacing atmosphere about it. This has become canonized as the deflationist, sometimes the minimalist, the minimalist or deflationist story about truth, which was due to Frank Ramsey in Cambridge and Gottlob Frege writing at the end of the 19th century in Germany. So that, and that's an idea that's had a lot of traction in the philosophy of language. It's part of the problem that, you know, these, the, the, the kind of academic debates we've had, if you like, about the nature of truth, the nature of facts, have kind of, you know, the way they have permeated through society, they've lost a lot in translation. And perhaps even a lot of the people who are most criticised, all the post-structuralists and sort of post-modernists of, of continental philosophers, you know, never really intended to cast doubt on whether or not something, a disinfectant, was or was not a cure for COVID-19. It's just all gone the wrong way. If we have gone down something of a blind alley, what, what's the way back from this? And perhaps I'll stick with you, Simon, because I've got you on screen and then turn to the others. What, what's our way back to the, the facts, if, if that's where we should be going back to? Well, I think we need to respect inquiry. We need to respect curiosity. And we need to expect, uh, respect people who work hard to satisfy their curiosity and work within a tradition which has proved very, very good at satisfying curiosity, and that is the scientific tradition. I mean, we all know that if you want to believe the truth about whether there are eggs in the fridge, you go and look. You don't look at the tea leaves, you look at the fridge. Um, we all know things like that. We know that if you want to tell whether the birds in your garden have had a clutch of eggs, you go and look. You don't just think it out for yourself.
from first principles, whatever that might mean. And the people who've gone and looked most effectively and have systematized what they've found are people like astronomers, biologists, physicists, the scientists. So I think that if you don't respect what the scientists tell you, you're either extremely clever, maybe an Einstein, or you're extremely dim. And most of the people, 99.99% of the people who say they've had enough of experts or they don't respect reasons and scientific reason is just male chauvinism, you know, run riot, they are simply very dim. They don't realize why scientists have the authority they do. They do because they've got a huge track record of getting things right and a huge track record of delivering useful techniques and abilities and knowledge to people. If you think of, of say, New Zealand, where Grace was, it was first, uh, the coast was first charted properly by James Cook, Captain Cook, when he first went there in the late 18th century. And he could do that because the chronometer, the marine chronometer had been invented, so he knew how far west or east of Greenwich he was. And it was these kind of advances, piecemeal, step by step and slow, which enable so much about the modern world, so many things we can do that our ancestors couldn't do. It's an amazing thing not to be lost at sea. It took a lot of experts to enable us to, to be in that state. And I think that people who forget that are just willfully ignorant. I mean, people like Michael Gove, you know. I don't know whether either Anandi or Sophie Grace has any thoughts on that, or whether that's a thought that's going nowhere. Well, a, a brief thought, if I may. I, I think it would be good to get into this discussion. Three people who've often been influential in the continental stroke postmodern critique of truth. And I'm thinking of Marx, Nietzsche, and Foucault. And I think what there is to be said for a critical approach to the concept of truth is probably best said by them. So, for example, Nietzsche says uh, more than once that the will to truth, the urge to get true beliefs, to get things right, is a will to power. And Marx makes it very clear that he thinks the dominant um, way of thinking about ethics and religion and um, how we should live our lives in the society that he lives in, in Victorian London, he makes it very clear that he thinks that that is an ideological view. Now, what they mean by this, I think it's, it's quite well put together by the third of the three thinkers I talked about, Foucault, who is perhaps of the three, the only one who would be happy to be coupled with the other two. And for Foucault, it is about systems of surveillance and power and authority and control. And he's talking about the ways in which our moral beliefs and our religious beliefs and our beliefs about what the world is there for, our big, big picture beliefs, if you like. He's talking about the way those beliefs are used to control us. Now, I don't think you can make co coherent sense of this critique of bourgeois society, as all, all three of them would probably agree on calling it. I, I think there is a good and important critique of the way things are done in our society there, but I don't think you can make sense of it without limiting it in two ways. First of all, it is about ideology in Marxist sense. It's about the beliefs that are used to control us. And that's not all beliefs. Not all beliefs are used to control us. And what we're trying to do in Marx and Nietzsche and Foucault is get free of that kind of control, which means there must be somewhere else that we can go where we aren't so controlled. So that's the first restriction on their critique of truth and truth as power. 
And the second restriction comes back to what Simon was saying, which is why I wanted to get it in here. The restriction is that none of those three thinkers is at all interested in denying the kind of truths about navigation that Simon's just been talking about. Of course, they're not denying that you need an accurate compass and whatever other devices you need to, to do the navigation. You need those devices in order to find New Zealand, and Captain Cook would only have found it by accident, brushing over the question whether he did in fact kind of find it by accident, which is possible, but never mind. You only will, will get around, you only will navigate in the world successfully if you have control of those basic kinds of facts. And wanting truths about navigations is, is not in any interesting sense the will to power. And it's not ideological. And it's not a system of control and coercion and surveillance. So there are truths which are exempt from that kind of critique. And I think that's very important in understanding those critiques properly. They get hopelessly overgeneralized, and then we really do end up in the mire. Yeah, I mean, it does, does, it does seem to me that perhaps part of what you saying there was that you know a lot of the critiques so-called you know down on truth down on facts are actually more down on the fact that a lot of people in power have claimed a monopoly on those things and actually what they've been presenting as truths and facts aren't truths and facts at all or at least are partial and selected to maintain their whole uh, position but you know in order to actually challenge that authority you need something more than just well my opinion is different right you need to say this is wrong you, you for example you know there is no racial inferiority women aren't inferior if that's if yeah. those aren't facts then you've really got nothing to to come back on on that mm. i mean and andy what what, what about what about you what, what do you see as the prospects for rehabilitation if that's what we want for facts and reason well i think that in order to move forward I think it's important to understand where the, the kind of contemporary challenge to facts and reason is coming from. And I think it's not really coming from the kind of academic relativist position or from Marxists or uh, Foucauldians. It's not coming from there at all. It's coming from, I think, a kind of common sense conservative position which privileges kind of the appeal to visceral gut intuition, gut feelings over rational thought. And this in turn, I think, is based in a kind of view of human nature as fundamentally biased, fundamentally and irredeemably biased, right? So you find this kind of argument being made by, for example, the conservative psychologist, Jonathan Haidt. And he, you know, so he puts it very clearly in, in that he thinks that we are all biased, including all of the scientists and all of the people in the humanities departments. The difference between the conservatives and the progressives on his view is just that the progressives are deluded into thinking that science is somehow giving them some, kind of, some special access to the truth. And so the thing is, I think that in this view, certain things like you know, certain bits of practical knowledge are going to be exempt also from the critique, right? Because those are in line with our interests on both sides. I need to know, you know, how to chart New Zealand, right? I need to know how to get around New Zealand. I need to know how to get around the seas. There's no conflict there. But as soon as my gut instincts or my gut intuition conflicts with the results of science on this kind of conservative view. In those cases, it's perfectly right to be suspicious of the science because the ultimate arbiter is this kind of intuition. And I think that, so I think it's really important to, to understand where that view is coming from uh, in order to understand how to move forward. So how we can progress um, in this kind of climate. So what, so, what, so what is the um, best way of dealing with that? There's a sort of a diagnosis there of, of, of the problem, but how, how do you counter that? Because it's, it's very powerful, isn't it? I mean, you know, the appeal to the gut, the idea that, you know, 
all the ordinary people know best and particularly gifted ones who are very stable geniuses know even better you know it seems to it seems to work people people if it's a choice between that and expertise a lot of people seem to go for it so you know how how, how can you do the job of explaining without forcing people to do a compulsory three-year uh, philosophy degree would that be such a bad thing <laughs> 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 the, the, the serious point behind that flippant comment is that I do think actually that a lot of our troubles, we, I think we've reaped what we've sown in recent years, and what we've sown, what the political leaders in, let's speak about the English-speaking world in particular, in, in both the US and the UK, there's been a long-term neglect, this is going to sound awfully self-serving because I'm an educator, but it's, I think it's true, there's been a long-term neglect of education all the way through, mm -hmm. and the lack of respect for facts and truth I think ultimately comes from just the fact that people do not have, in the US in particular, but to a lesser extent in the UK, the idea of education as being precisely the idea that Michael Gove famously attacked, the idea of experts, the idea that there are places where you can go where you will find stuff out that is reliable. You will find facts out that you can point to and say you can rely on it that be about them. And we got to this idea, we got to this situation where everyone thinks, you know, any old jumble of different sources on the internet is just as good as any other. And education teaches you to be more discriminating. And I think that ultimately the answer to the problems that you're, the question that you're answering, you're asking, Julian, ultimately the answer to that question is Tony Blair's education, education, education. And Tony Blair's government, though, was a government which also sort of made a strategic choice that in order to have power, you focus on effective communications over rational argument and 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 that kind of presentation. So you know uh, the, the the rhetoric moved to pushing psychological buttons, and I do wonder a little bit about that. You know, social psychology is um, I find social psychology fascinating. The fact the replication crisis is itself fascinating as well. That all these findings that are fascinating turn out to be false. But anyway, fascinating field. But it's kind of a it's a two effects I think which haven't been helpful for the kind of things that you want to do one is that it's kind of the take-home message people have is that people are fundamentally irrational anyway and and even people who think they aren't are just deluded so you're you're you're, you're sitting here defending reason and you're, you're talking as though you're being led by the facts and the reasons but you're actually being led by your dispositions your preferences and so forth and and all the rationalization is just veneer basically can't it be both I'm led by my dispositions but also by the facts that's a good answer. But say a little bit more of that in a minute. The second point that social psychology has done is, it's kind of persuaded people. If you want to, if you want to persuade people, don't give them rational arguments. Press the emotional buttons, right? So, and 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 it, that does seem to work. So the lesson everyone's learning is that there's nothing to be gained from trying to be rational and clear and and logical, whatever you want to call it. There's everything to be gained by pushing emotional buttons. So it seems to me that you know that those are sort of strike those genies are out of the bottle. So how do how do we contain them? And this is I guess is linking up with what is supposed to be the third theme of this discussion, which is where is the post-truth era heading? I mean, in broad terms, where are we heading? How do we deal with with those phenomena in our society? Because they're out there now. They're, they're what people believe and people are using tools of social psychology. And all that seems to leave reason just floundering. I mean, this is a very old battle, the battle between rhetoric and logic, as it were. I mean, it's there in Plato, as Sophie Graceful confirm. One of Socrates' principal targets very often were the sophists of his day, who used rhetoric. It was later 
systems, as it were, codified by Aristotle. And part of the Socratic method was supposed to be uncovering when, when and where you've been misled simply by a rhetorical trope, a rhetorical overstatement, or a rhetorical way of distracting you from the facts. And education, as Sophie Grace has been rightly stressing, is partly a learning to sift and winnow and exercise curiosity about whether the first argument that struck your fancy is actually any good. And that's a very, very important sort of break, sort of like a low gear to have where you go slowly instead of charging ahead. And I think that people have lost that. The only route to recovery is that they regain it. Mm-hmm. It's interesting, you mentioned the ancient Greeks. I mean, of course, Aristotle's account of rhetoric had three key components, logos, pathos, and ethos. So he recognized the fact that you needed to use to connect with people's emotions. But he thought, in addition to that, you needed to sort of like be able to show you of good character so you'd be trustworthy, right? And also logos, you had to have the reason part as well. So in a way, it wasn't about, you know, bring all these three things together is more powerful than any one by itself. And I do wonder about that. If I, if I look to people who offer some hope, if I think of recent political leaders, um, you know, forgive my obvious liberal leanings here, you know, Barack Obama, Jacinda Ardern in New Zealand, these seem to be people who, who understand that really well. They come across as people of very good character. They know how to empathize and everything, but they also bring reason with it. So I think too often it seems the battle between reason and emotion. And these people show it, you, it's the powerful combination of three which seems to work. Um, I shouldn't be speaking, I'm only the chair. And Andy, <laughs> save the audience from me. I wanted to say something maybe a little controversial about the social psychology, because I, I think that, at least in some cases, the argument to the effect or the evidence for our being irrational assumes a very, shall we say, simple-minded account of what rationality is. And I think that philosophers certainly have more, have a, lot, have a lot more to say about what it is to be rational. And some of the things that we might have to say about that can have a bearing on how we interpret those findings. So I'm not completely convinced by even this kind of social psychological research that is supposed to show that we are in this way fundamentally and you know irreparably irrational. I also think there is some psychological evidence, so now I'm relying on it, that <laughs> that, that suggests that people, especially when we engage in certain kinds of collective activities, for example, when we engage in collective problem-solving activities across the aisle, or when we have to engage in a debate or present our views towards one another, when we know that they're going to be criticized, that this actually improves our ability to solve the problem or arrive at the truth. It allows us to be more rational in our our, um, behavior. So in fact, some there, there's something to be said for really trying to engage in this kind of rational discourse with one another, this kind of reason debate with one another, because it might even make us more individually rational. So I think that's important as well as education, that we really try to find a way to engage in this way. And I think that at some level, the, the sort of hopeful thing about the sort of Darwinian story about the fact that, you know, like in practice, the facts can jump up and bite us, is that everyone at some level cares about getting at the truth because it matters for all sorts of practical pursuits that you might have. So even if you might think you might get into this, this kind of 
way of thinking where you think, well, I can just follow my gut. I think at some level, this is just not, this is not really true to human nature. No, thanks. I think that the research you're pointing to about, which seems that reason works pretty well when we do it collectively, is, is very interesting. And I think that perhaps people have mistaken the message. We've been told ever since, you know, can't think for yourself, but that doesn't mean we should think by ourselves. And it's right. it's by <laughs> thinking together that we actually seem to, to do better. I think we've, um, we're pretty much uh, there wrapped up. Is anyone bursting to have a final thing to say, which they haven't managed to get out yet? Because well, one thing very quickly, just on this exchange with Andy about social psychology, in nudge theory, we're told that there are ways that you can you can prompt people to frame a question in a way which will inevitably give them a particular answer. I'm very interested in the differences between what you might call rhetorical strategies which are transparent and ones which are not. By transparent, I mean that if the person that you're working on knows how you're working on them, then they won't be offended. Mm. Nudge theory is not transparent in that sense. If someone understands that they're using nudge theory on them, they will be offended. And they'll be offended in what I think is a strikingly Kantian way. The basis of their feeling will be, you're not respecting my rationality. And this happens in internet exchanges. Someone works out that someone else is using nudge theory or whatever on them, and they get offended. They get cross. They say, you're not respecting me as a rational interlocutor. I would want to say, don't give up completely. Don't lose all hope in internet exchanges, because often they are governed by really strikingly Kantian and indeed Gricean norms of conversation. And that's a good thing. It's not all hopeless out there. Yeah, indeed. And it's also the very fact that they, the case that we are not led by evidence and argument is made by evidence and argument. Which is an- <laughs> Quite so. Quite so. Uh, Marvellous. I'm, I'm really delighted that we've had this conversation and we managed to mention Grice, Ramsey, Quine, Frege, uh, very high browns. <laughs> the footnotes to this are extraordinary and would grace the, uh, would, be, would, would do justice to an eminent journal like Mind. But it's all been wonderfully lucid, wonderfully clear. So I'd like to thank you all, Amandi, Hattie and Gaddy, Sophie Grace Chapel and Simon Blackburn. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit our website, iai.tv, for hundreds more podcasts, videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers.